Um, as I told the first service, I'm, I'm, beginning, I'm beginning this um, message in a different place than I had intended to um, as um, things happened this last week that were predictable but still tragic. I want to begin reading ten names to you. Aaron Kyle McLeod, Angelique Ramirez, Chris Stone, Jared Connard Black, Kimberly Jessica Vaughn, Shanna Shana Fisher, Christian Garcia, Sabika Sheik, Cynthia Tisdale, Ann Perkins. Eight students, two educators, killed Santa Fe High School, just a few hours away from us. Last week, I, along with, I don't know, 100 and something million other people, saw this music video on YouTube that kind of took the nation by storm. Uh, Donald Glover, uh, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, uh, released this uh, music video called This Is America. And you may not be a rap fan, and there's definitely violence and language in the video. But the video does a lot of things really powerfully. It communicates a message very powerfully. Not only uh, uh, does it communicate to race issues in our country, but, but it, it demonstrates how our worship of entertainment has created this system where there's all kinds of violence and carnage going on in the background, and, and yet we don't even see it because we're so caught up in this entertainment cycle. As Sonda and I debated over whether we heard Yanni, Yanni versus Laurel. Clearly Laurel, I'm just going to put that out there. But as we debated Yanni versus Laurel, there was a 17-year-old boy battling within himself over whether he would murder his classmates. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? And somehow... I believe the battle that's raging boils down to worship. There is a war raging for truth, for beauty, for goodness, for love. And at the heart of that battle is worship. Who will we worship? We see, I think, in our world around us what happens when worship is misplaced. We get twisted. So, where I intended to begin was with this picture. Uh, a few years ago, I had uh, this, the privilege of doing missions in Sudan, and I would fly in and out of South Sudan a lot. We would take a commercial flight into Kenya and then, and then uh, charter a small flight into into Sudan, South Sudan, and, and uh, this was, uh, this, in the picture here, I'm, I'm uh, co-piloting a little uh, Cessna 206, which, which will fit about four people plus some cargo, um, and uh, I, I, I was just having to pinch myself. I got to do this a couple of times, but um, here I am over the continent of Africa flying, and, and uh, if Cody Faust was here, he could tell us, he's learned to be a pilot, he could tell us more, but I, I, I didn't really know anything about the instrument panel. I really wasn't in charge of anything. There was a professional sitting right next to me. But, um, 
but all these instruments and these gauges are there on the instrument panel on the dash. Uh, and most of them I didn't understand, but there was one graphic that I really, really understood, and it was, this, it was our flight path. There was this purple line, and then there was an image of an airplane, and even I could figure out what that meant. And, 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 and as I would be, I would get caught up in the scenery, I mean, just looking around at this incredible scenery and the clouds, and, and every now and then, like I would look over and, and, and I would realize I needed to reorient our plane because I would start to wander off of the flight path. And so I would just kind of veer us over and get back on the flight path. Or every now and then the pilot next to me would say, hey, you might want to get back on the path. And, and if I hadn't had that person reminding me, or if I hadn't had that visual there, uh, and if I had just wandered and kept, continued to wander, I mean, who knows what country we might have ended up in or how we would have crash landed. And, and the reality is our lives are that way. We forget sometimes where we're going. And we forget why we're going there. We forget who we even are. And, 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 and we wonder, we are prone to wander off of the path. And, and in worship, true worship, private worship, just you and Jesus, uh, corporate worship, which is us and Jesus, uh, in true worship, as we honor the true God, what we're doing is we are coming back into alignment to the path that probably we've wandered from. This is why I've got to worship every day, uh, uh, and, 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 and I've got to get together with, with you frequently and regularly, and we worship in a big group, we worship in small groups, we worship individually, just us and Jesus, because in true worship, our hearts are reminded, our hearts are reoriented, our hearts are refocused on Christ, and we get drawn back to the path that we so easily wander away from. So let me give you uh, three stories, three brief stories that I think we'll relate to. Uh, uh, first, there's a man who most people would uh, consider to be kind and gentle and, and caring and upstanding. But when his kids, but when his kids do something he doesn't like, when his kids disobey him, that kind, upstanding man becomes a monster and he loses his temper fiercely when his children don't do what he tells them to do. Or how about a woman who, who moves to, from relationship to relationship? Uh, Man after man, living out the same cycle of hope and disappointment and shame over and over and over again on repeat. Or a teenager who's infatuated with the latest designer jeans or the best phone or the, or the newest game, but as soon as he gets that thing and the new wears off, he feels just as empty, if not more empty, than he did before. What do those three stories have in common? They're all about worship. The first man, the man that goes into a rage, whether he realizes it or not, he worships control. He's made an idol out of control. And when somebody bucks his control, he loses it. The woman in the second story, whether she realizes it or not, she's made an idol out of relationships. And she seeks to find her security in relationships. The, the teenager in the third story has, has placed his, his worth and he's looking, his, his affections are set on stuff and material Things and none of those things gives us a lasting, uh, a lasting fulfillment. Our world, just like the world in the Old Testament that we read about, I mean, we read the Old Testament, we read about Molech, and we read about Baal, and and and, and we're like, well, that was weird. I mean, uh, it's not like there's uh, literal idols that, that 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 we're tempted to worship now. Idolatry. What made one of the things that made idolatry in the Old Testament so appealing was it was the opportunity at a sure thing. 
Man, you do X, Y, Z, you can guarantee that Baal is going to do his part. And, and, and the, the, the God of Israel was so wild and untamable that, 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 that the people of Israel constantly chose the sure thing over faith. Okay, and, and now, yeah, our world isn't filled with Molech and Baal maybe anymore, but man, we got materialism. We got control. Uh, some of us are worshiping, uh, some of us are worshiping um, uh, comfort. Anybody worship comfort lately? Status, popularity, tradition, our nation, politics, Democrats or Republicans. Uh, maybe we've worshipped, we've, we've, we've made safety our idol. Maybe we've made guns our idol. Maybe we've made religion our idol. And a question um, that we can ask is, is, maybe it's an idol if the answer is, do, do, I, do I seek my security in this thing rather than in God? Maybe we take a good thing, a tool, and we look to it and we make an ultimate thing out of it. And we look for security there rather than in Christ. Have I, do I love this blank? Do I love my status more than I love my neighbor? Do I see red when this thing is threatened? So everybody worships. The question is, what do we worship? Who do we worship? Will we worship truly? Will we worship well? John's gospel says... The Father seeks worshipers, and those who worship Him worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so a a core value, our fourth core value, this is why we're skipping forward today. We talked about gospel, relationship, and on mission, and now this fourth core value is worship. Worship. The Creator and Redeemer God of the universe is worthy of honor. He's worthy of our awe. And in true worship, our hearts are reminded. Our hearts are refocused. Our hearts are reoriented to Him. And so for the past year plus, we've been telling the story. The story that begins uh, in the beginning. It begins in Genesis 1 uh, when this good God created this, this universe and created us in His image. And He created us to worship Him. You were hardwired. We are hardwired for worship. Paul Tripp writes, Worship is not primarily your activity. Worship is first your identity as a human being. Our identity is that we are all worshipers of something. So the appropriate response like to a holy and perfect and good God is to worship Him, to joyfully just be in awe of Him. That's that's the appropriate response. That's the response that he demands. But not only is it the appropriate and the demanded response, but true worship is what's best for us. Because when I worship the true God, I become like him. But when I worship anything else, I become twisted. I become a mess. I become a wreck. And there's just like the people of Israel were seduced by Baal, or by Marduk, or by Moloch. We're seduced by materialism. We're seduced by relationships. We're seduced by control. We're seduced by that sure thing. Everybody worships. But when we worship something that's not God, we get twisted into this disturbing, terrifying image. When we worship the true God, we become like Him. Because we become like what we worship. 
G.K. Beale wrote an incredible book called We Become What We Worship, and he wrote in there, what we revere, we resemble either for our ruin or our restoration. What we revere, we resemble either for our ruin or our restoration. We're all revering something, and we are all coming to resemble that thing either for our ruin or our restoration. And so the story continues, God created us for worship, and then there's this terrible exchange we make. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of something that's not God. We remember Genesis 3, we chose to rebel against God, do our own thing. And there was this terrible exchange. We exchanged the glory of God for the glory of, of, of something less than God. We exchanged, we traded the awe of God for awe of ourselves. And we've been in awe of ourselves ever since. So, so, so let's, let's think about a scenario. Say your work has a party. And let's say that you are a self-worshipper. And you go to the party, and people don't really make a big deal out of you. And you walk away from the party, and you say, Man, nobody made me the big deal. Like, nobody realized how incredible I am. And they didn't talk to me. They didn't ask me a bunch of questions. Um, they didn't ask what snacks I wanted. Um, that was a terrible, terrible party. May we do that when we come and we gather for corporate worship together. But imagine if you're a worshiper Truly, not a worship in word, but a worship in truth. You're a worshiper of Christ. And you walk away from that same party and you say, and your, your measurement is totally different. You say, man, I got to ask some great questions of people. Man, I got to pour into some people at that party. Man, I got to ask old Joe how he's doing with Jesus. And I've been wanting to ask that for a long time. I got to be a witness. I got to listen. You see how worship and whether I'm at the center or Christ is at the center, that affects everything that I do. That great, that terrible exchange continues. We see in Exodus 15, the people of Israel get de- delivered from Egypt. And yay, we're rescued. And they celebrate God. And then a few chapters later, they've made an image of a calf that, as Psalm 106 says, they exchange the glory of God for, a, for an ox that eats hay. And they're worshiping it and saying, this is your God. Like, And we look at that and we say, man, I would never do that. I would never worship a, a cow. But yeah, you would. And I do, and we worship stuff that's so dumb, that cannot satisfy us. Romans 1, we exchange the glory of God for the glory of created things. In true worship, we're reminded. In true worship, I'm reminded, oh yeah, I've wondered. I've wondered, and I'm I'm brought back. In true worship, my life is my heart are refocused and reoriented around Christ. Tim Keller writes, worship is pulling our affections off of our idols and putting them on God. He says, obviously, at our deepest level, we were created for worship. So at the end of Acts 2, we see the body of Christ gathering in big groups and in small groups for worship. The end of Acts 5, we see that that teaching the scriptures at the center of their worship. But I want to zero in on Acts chapter 16. And just to kind of set up what's happening here, Paul and Silas, and Timothy, and probably Luke, um, have gone to uh, Philippi. And they've, they've, uh, they met some, an incredible woman named Lydia, and there's a, a church that's planted. And then there's this crazy exchange where there's a servant girl whose, whose owners are making money off of her because she has a spirit of divination, and she's She's going around prophesying and they're making money off of her, but she's following Paul around saying, this is the servant of God, this is the servant of God. And Paul finally gets aggravated and he casts the demon out of her and then her owners are, are upset and they gather all these people up and they beat 
Paul and Silas, within an inch of their lives, they beat them with bats and sticks, and then they throw them in prison. So who would want to have a church service at that point? Probably not most of us. So we pick up in, in, in Acts 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas, now they're in prison, in a dank, nasty prison, in their stocks, and they're uncomfortable, and they're bruised, and they're beaten, and they're bloody. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, Acts 16, 25. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with what with, with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he's not asking, how can I go to heaven? He's saying, man, I'm in a bind. I'm in a mess. How do I get out of this mess that I'm in? And they said, believe, trust, place your confidence in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You will be rescued, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, brought them, um, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Paul and Silas. First thing I see there is that worship is a response to Christ, not a reaction to my circumstances. Worship is a re- true worship is a response to Christ, not a reaction to my circumstances. Because let me be honest with you, if somebody beat me and threw me in prison and put me in stocks and I'm in prison unjustly and I'm sore and I'm tired and all my idols, I mean, has, has your idol of comfort been, been toppled over if you're in stocks in prison? Yeah, there's no comfort. Has your idol of success toppled over? I mean, successful people don't get beaten and thrown in prison, right? Has the idol of control been toppled over? I mean, Paul and Silas are not in control here. Man, i got to be honest. I don't know that singing songs to God and praying, I hope that would have been my response, but it certainly was their response, and they're responding to the worth of Christ. They're not reacting to their circumstances. Jesus was worthy, and as desperate men, they cried out to him. Paul and Silas value Christ over their comfort, success, control, or any other idol. And in worship, I'm reminded, and I'm guessing they're reminding themselves, they're reminding themselves who is God. Wait a minute. God isn't surprised by this. Uh, God, God's sovereign. I don't understand this, but they're reminding themselves. And so when we're flying our plane of life, there's all these gauges, right? And the most, the, so often the gauge that we pay the most attention to is the gauge that says, how do I feel? And that is a real thing. How you feel is real. And I didn't intend that to rhyme. Um, how you feel is real, but how you feel is not reliable. And so if, if, the only, the only, if the only gauge I'm looking at is how do I feel, I mean, I'm going to get off track. So there's this other gauge of what's my story? What has God done in my life up to now? And then there's this other gauge of who is God? What does God's Word say? Who does God's Word say that He is? And as they're worshiping, they're reminding themselves of who God is. 
They're going away from, they're not just looking at the feeling gauge, they're looking at who is God. In worship, that's what happens. We're reminded. And in worship, I'm reminded not only of who God is, but I'm reminded of who I am. We just sang that song, Who You Say I Am. And I am a man in need of grace. Gut level, bottom line, I am a man in need of grace. And in worship, I'm reminded of that, that I am in need. You are. So was this authentic? Authenticity is a big deal for us. Were Paul and Silas faking or pretending when they're worshiping, even though maybe they didn't feel like it? See, sometimes, you know, and authenticity is important. But Paul and Silas's authenticity is rooted in something deeper than their circumstances. Their authenticity is rooted in Christ. And so they can authentically worship Christ here, even though maybe they're not feeling it, because they're rooted in Him. Worship is private, individual, and it's also communal. Um, Paul and Silas are able to live this witness of worship because their lives have been formed by all of their times of worship leading up to this. Paul has been worshiping. He and and Jesus have been spending time together before this moment. The saints have been gathering, and they've they've, they've not forsaken their assembling together leading up to this moment. And because they have been worshiping individually, them and Jesus, and together, when this crunch time comes, when this challenge comes, their response is to worship. They've been formed. And if what we're doing here as we gather doesn't result in us scattering and living lives of worship, then what is the point? Their gathering resulted in them living lives of worship as they scattered. Um, Worship involves, true worship, biblical worship, involves all of us, our whole person. Whether this is just you and Jesus or this is all of us together, Worship is bodily. Worship involves our body, our emotion, our mind, our will. Just think about a couple of these scriptures. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. May may those who delight in salvation shout for joy. Paul writes, I command 1 Timothy 2, I command men everywhere to lift up holy hands. There's just a couple of examples of how in in, in biblical language we can worship God by by, uh, by reverently bowing our head or or by sprawling out face down on the ground. We may worship God by dancing. We may worship God by clapping. We may worship God by, by raising our hands. But one posture, one posture that uh, the Bible never depicts as a response to God is indifference. That's not not one of the options. Worship involves our body. Worship involves our emotions. Engages when when, when we sing. You You know, since the beginning of time, people have been singing love songs. People have been singing about what they revere and who they revere. And you think about what rises up in you as you hear a song. Like, uh, you know, maybe you, um, uh, maybe there's a song that you and a special someone have and you call Delilah and you request it on the radio and, and all that. You know, the feelings that bubble up. Delilah. Okay, so, so when, we, when we worship, this is why we, this is why we sing. That's why Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 say to to sing songs and we hear one another singing truth. And and so whether we're singing old songs or new songs, it really doesn't matter. They just need to be good songs. They need to be biblically rooted songs. They need to be songs centered on Christ. 
And it stirs our affections for Him. And worship affects our will. We do something with it. Next, worship is missional. Worship is a witness. Paul and Silas are praying and they're singing, but everybody in the prison was listening. Everybody in the prison was listening. And you know, I think everybody in that prison was asking the same question that people in Sweetwater are asking and people in this world are asking. They're asking, will their witness match their worship? Are their lives going to match their lyrics? Are these people going to do what they're singing about? Or is it all just a show? And if Paul and Silas had related to this jailer in a different way than they're about to, it would have spoiled their witness with everybody in that jail. Everybody's listening. They're saying, are these guys for real? Guys, that's what people are asking. That's what people are asking about us. Are these guys for real? So worship leads to freedom. The the chains break. The women had a breaking chains event yesterday. And as this worship was happening, man, chains fell off of everybody in that prison. Worship leads to freedom. This is a picture of how worship, true worship leads to freedom. And the jailer comes in and he's confused. And and not only is is he a little upset, he's in a mess. Everybody in his prison now has the potential to go free. But but maybe also, maybe let's say he's been worshiping Zeus all his life. And now he sees that Christ has set these people free. And he says, man, I have placed my trust in the wrong place all this time. It's like the guy that trusts... Uh, that's placed his trust in his career advancement or the, or the, or the woman who, who, who all her life has placed her confidence in her health and then she gets sick or the guy that's placed his trust in his career and then he gets fired and we realize, man, all this time, I've had it wrong. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, place your trust, your confidence in Christ. Worship is resistance and we're wrapping up. Whether we look at Israel and Egypt and how they worshiped God But they were also, as they were worshiping, they were resisting the evil of Pharaoh. We think about the African-American church in the South, in the civil rights movement, how their worship fueled their mission. They resisted injustice through worship. We think about the martyrs in the book of Revelation who are under the altar of God crying out for justice. Worship is an act of resistance. Worship, in worship we resist the pull of idolatry. Man, when I'm, when, when, when I, when I'm worshiping Christ or I'm, I'm, I'm singing about Him or reading about Him or I'm with you, I can see, for a moment I can see things so clearly. And all my idols don't, they're not anywhere near as powerful anymore. Worship is resistance. Worship is warfare. And in worship, minded of this battle that's raging for hearts and minds and for glory and for honor and beauty and love. And we get reminded that the king has won this battle already and we get to be part of what he's doing. Worship is a foretaste. This is it. Worship is a foretaste. The book of Revelation ends with this picture of a new heaven and a new earth. A party... Every tongue and tribe and nation gathered around the throne of God and gathered around a table having a meal. The people of God adorned as a bride and Jesus the groom. Anybody watch the royal wedding? Half the world watched it and half the world heard a message about Christ-like love. Pretty amazing.
I missed it, but a lot of people didn't. Why are we fascinated by that? When, when the kids were hanging out at the shop yesterday during breaking chains, little Chloe uh, came up, uh, she came up and kind of put her hands on her hips and said, well, I'm looking for a boy. I said, okay, well, tell me more. And she said, not a big boy, he needs to be a small boy. I said, okay, well, well, Ethan's right here, will he work? And she's like, yeah, kind of grabbed him by his arm and said, we're going to play kings and princesses. And Ethan's just used to being told what to do by women. He said, okay, we will. And so he, he rolled with it. Kings and princesses, why? Why are we so attracted to the royal wedding? Why are we so enamored by kings and princesses? Because we know deep down that there's coming a day where the groom will get his bride. And we're going to have a party. And when we worship, it's a taste. It's a preview. Even if it's awkward, and and Kelsey used the example of dancing earlier, maybe we're stepping on each other's toes and we're getting it wrong and we're not moving right, and and, and maybe we're we're doing the Macarena and everybody else is two-stepping, I don't know, but worship is a foretaste of the day that the bride and the groom come together for all eternity and every tear is wiped away. Every wound is healed. So I want to leave here with Romans 12.1 in mind as the band comes up. Romans 12.1 says that we present our bodies, it's to present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12.1 is about a life of worship. What we do here and what we do in smaller groups and what we do all week long in different ways together, it's meaningless if it does not result in us living lives of worship out where the rubber meets the road with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers so live a life of worship this week walk out of these double doors knowing that you are a living sacrifice you're a child of god you're loved by a king his his affection has been set on you